Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Alan, where are you from originally? I'm from uh, the New York City area. I was uh, born in New York City, New Jersey, Long Island. Got it. No, I did not. I did not experience real cold until college. But you're, you're from Chicago, so you you know what it's like. Yeah, I mean, Chicago is not Minnesota cold, though. Not enough lakes. I think that's right. It's but not isn't a lot it, of lakes? But it's, not isn't lakes. it kind of? It's. I thought it was kind of grayer. It's drafty. It's very it's gray. gray. It's gray for like eight months a year. You know, Quinta. That's not why they call it the Windy City. Actually. Wait, it's not. No, it's, no. It's called the Windy City because of its politicians, epic and cartoonish of levels of corruption. Exactly, not because it's actually windy, though it is also quite windy. Wait, what is? I'm going to show myself to be a total idiot here. What's the connection between corruption and levels of wind? That's apparently an expression from whenever that terminology came to be. That if someone if someone was corrupt, they were windy. Yeah, like what they say is full of wind. Like they're full of wind. I never, I never know that. I, I note that as a very polite way of calling someone flatulent, but apparently it's also a way Well, of, that was why I was confused. Yeah. I should also say we, I just had a huge gust of wind over in my apartment. And I mean that outside winds. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Welcome to Rational Security 2.0, a.k.a. Rational Security Into Dorkness. I am your host, Scott R. Anderson. I am joined here with my, my friends, Quinta Jurassic and Alan Rosenstein. Say hello, Quinta and Alan. Hi. <laughs> that was great. I really like Into Darkness. <laughs> We're saying hello on command. Hello, Scott. I'm trying to, trying to keep this thing moving. Keep it breezy. Keep it easy. Blowing along because we have a very special guest with us, our first return customer as a rational security guest, Lawfare Executive Editor, Natalie, quote, Norpit, unquote, Orpit. How are you, Natalie? Good to have you back on the show. Why, thank you. I am honored to be here for the Into Darkness episode. Just for you, Natalie. I do feel quite like I belong here. Into Norpness. Into Norpness. Uh, Natalie, how does it feel to be our first return customer in such high demand? I'm deeply honored. I don't know. I don't think I have anything particularly insightful to say, which means that maybe I will not be a return after this. <laughs> Third time is a stretch, but we'll see. We may make it happen. I mean, it does feel appropriate to bring you back in this kind of spooky season as our first kind of risen from the dead guests haunting us from beyond your last appearance. Uh, so it was great to have you here. Why, thank you. Is appearing on the Ratsack podcast equivalent to being killed? The kiss of death. Yeah, exactly. I think something along those lines. Depends on whether we'll see how many return customers we have. But so far, that appears to be the trend. But we'll see where it goes from here. Well, we are very excited to have you with us here today for the Very Windy edition, where we will be talking about three topics taken from the front pages of the news with you. For our first topic today, we have a mess in Texas. Texas's Republican governor has appointed one of President Trump's former election lawyers as Secretary of State. Are Trump supporters planning to steal the next election or are Democrats' concerns overblown? Our second topic Apologies in advance to any Russian listeners for the Yakov Smirnov impression I am about to try and perform. In Mother Russia, Berpok you. That, that was like Scottish. It was a little Scottish. I'm not great at accents, admittedly. It's not my strong suit. Scott, as an actual Russian speaker, I am quite offended, but also charming. Oh. So go ahead. All right. That's all I ask. That's all I'm really going for. In Mother Russia, Berpok you. A Russian spy agency is still trying to penetrate U.S. networks, despite clear warnings of repercussions from the United States. Is the Biden administration strategy failing, and what should it be doing instead? And finally, topic three, chain of fools. The worst of the global pandemic may be behind us, but the disruptions to the global supply chain are still piling up. Has the drive for an integrated global economy hit its high watermark? For our first topic, Quinta, let me hand it over to you. So the topic that I wanted to discuss today has to do with how we're thinking about various efforts in sort of state houses and state governments around the country 
to take action based on the big lie and sort of reshape elections, either on the voting end or on the counting votes end. And the reason that I was thinking about this this week, because obviously it's been going on for many, many months now, since about a year ago, in fact, was that uh, Texas Governor Greg Abbott selected a new Texas Secretary of State the other week, uh, John Scott, who just happens to have, albeit briefly, represented Trump in one of the cases that he brought challenging the counting of the election in November 2020. So this is, uh, if listeners recall, it's a, it was the Pennsylvania case. Um, they were seeking to block the certification of the election. So to be fair to Scott, there's a bit of an odd circumstance where he signed on as counsel and then withdrew a few days later before a key hearing in the case. So he wasn't really there for very long. But he is, you know, sort of aligned with this sort of Trumpist movement to challenge the electoral count. And he's not the only one. So there's a a wave of Republicans running for Secretary of State positions across the country, many of whom have been endorsed by Trump personally, many of whom are sort of peddling the idea of the big lie and suggesting that secretaries of state need to take a more active role in overseeing elections. I think what's interesting about this is that it's not the same as what we usually think of when we think about Republicans trying to mess with elections. Traditionally, when people have complained about that on the left, what they've been thinking about are restrictions that limit voters' access to the franchise. So for example, voter ID laws, uh, limiting access to the polls, things like that. Those, Those reforms are also happening and I think are also concerning. But this is a bit different because it's threatening the integrity of the vote sort of on the back end when it's being counted. So my question is really, how should we think about this distinction between sort of front end and back end challenges to the integrity of election? Like, is one more concerning than the other? Should we sort of be shifting our focus more from voting access to worrying and trying to protect the integrity of vote counting? Alan, I'm curious for your thoughts. I think this is one of these situations in which there's enough concerning stuff to go around. We don't have to choose what we should be worried about. We can be worried about both. I mean, I think if we had to choose, I do find that this new tactic, in particularly in Republican-led states, to increase the politicization of election administration uh, is really concerning because you know one thing that is perhaps not appreciated as much as should be with regard to more traditional attempts to limit voting, whether it's through voter ID or limiting ballot access or things of that nature, or limiting mail-in voting, is that although on moral grounds, it might be objectionable, and certainly a lot of the intent, I think, of these kinds of restrictions is objectionable, whether or not it's to restrict how racial minorities can vote or just to restrict how a particular political party votes. When you actually look at the data, What's surprising is that these restrictions tend to have very little effect. I mean, we have all these big debates about, you know, whether or not we should have more or less mail-in voting. And there are good arguments, right, for increasing mail-in voting. And there are good arguments for maybe restricting mail-in voting in certain circumstances. But as it turns out, on a partisan basis, it doesn't really make that much of a difference. And that's also true for voter ID, right? Uh, And this is especially true as the two-party coalitions shift and the Republican electorate is increasingly less educated and less affluent than it used to be. In that sort of situation, a lot of traditional Republican attempts to limit voting by putting up various annoyances don't actually favor their own party because a lot of their own voters are the ones that are uh, restricted. By contrast, if you have a Republican secretary of state or Republican legislature that gives itself the power to overturn its nonpartisan or career election administration, then you have a really dangerous situation in which you literally have of election stolen. Um, And I I use that term with trepidation because, of course, after 2020 and Trump's baseless claims of the election being stolen, it's kind of lost all its meaning, except for when it doesn't. And I think a situation that we could see, whether in 2022 or especially in 2024, of a red state uh, voting for the Democrat and of the new Republican legislature or the Republican secretary of state using some new power to overturn that, that that to me would be 
nearing kind of an existential threat to American democracy. Yeah, I think I have all of those concerns. And my sort of general answer to that, Quinta, that I'm feeling is utter despair when thinking about this issue. So I think I I tried to look at some of the how would, would this play out? And the first thing, obviously, that comes to mind is there would be a lot of lawsuits, right? Much in the same way as there already has been with election related disputes and controversies. And in this case, it's possible to find people, I am sure, who would have standing to bring suits against these secretaries of states if necessary. And there is a general rule that if state administration of elections violates the 14th Amendment, the federal government does have a say in what happens. States can't just do absolutely anything they want to do in administration of elections. Ironically, something that we have Bush v. Gore, that famous 2000 case, to to thank for that equal protection holding. Indeed. And there are others. Um, There are cases going all the way back to the late 1800s that affirm this. So it's, it's not new. That, I think, is comforting. And at the same time, it raises the related issue, I guess, that if the general perception of the courts is that they are not legitimate either. What difference does it make? So I want to advance a slightly more controversial take on this topic, which is that I, I want, I'm going to clear the air and say, I agree with, because I find a lot of this concerning, right? I want to set that aside for the moment, though. I think we also need to be a little concerned to some extent about, for lack of a better way to put it, like how concerned we are about this. Because I think there's actually kind of emerging kind of two narratives about what is a legitimate level of way of structuring elections and that they're kind of on divergent paths. Because while we've seen, I think, something like 17, 18, 19 states enact election and voting access restriction legislation on the whole is a, based on a Brennan Center kind of survey of the laws. We've actually seen 20, 21, 22 states enact laws that have actually broadened voter access to ballots and elections in a lot of different ways. The latter tend to be blue states, the former tend to be red states, although there are some states that kind of cross different categories or have laws that do different things in different directions, at least the Brennan Center kind of assessed that. And I think a lot of the rhetoric we hear about these being efforts to steal elections, I think there's an element of that. But on the uh, Republican side, often they are justifying this by an air saying we are preserving and securing the elections from perceived voter fraud. Now, those allegations of perception of voter fraud are almost very rarely rooted very much in fact at all. But some of the underlying measures that they're inherently pursuing aren't necessarily things that as, as Alan noted, have a clear, massive impact one way or another on election outcomes, except in like extremely, extremely close elections, probably even closer than we've seen in some of these localities in the last few years. And so the question is, like, are these efforts to actually steal an election or are they efforts motivated by a perhaps misinformed, but not inherently malicious or self-serving agenda to preserve what they see as a democratic process. And I think there is this, the fact that you have these disparate views and particularly particularly hostile views on either side of the other party. And I will admit, I find one much more persuasive. Like I'm much more worried about Republicans are doing this area than Democrats, because that's my preference. But nonetheless, the fact you have this disputed narrative where each one is accusing the other of stealing the election, I think is problematic in two regards. One, it makes it really hard to get compromise on measures that may be imperfect from either side's perspective, but where you may be able to get some sort of progress on a couple core issues towards actually securing elections and actually expanding enfranchisement towards people we agree should be able to vote and hopefully do it easily and readily. Two, it also really increases the odds that no matter who loses the election, a big part of the electorate is going to treat it as invalid and illegitimate. And that's really undermines the fundamental norm of our democracy, which is a peaceful transition of power. So I think we need to observe all these concerns, observe these trends, certainly act against them through legitimate channels, but also calibrate a little bit how we talk about it and perceive it, because I think there's also dangers on the other side about going too far to the other end rhetorically or in our own framing of these developments. I mean, I guess I see what you're getting at there, Scott. But at the end of the day, I mean, the fact that at least some people within the Republican Party, I mean, I have no idea what these people running for secretary of state in you know various states really believe in their hearts, right? If they, they really believe in the big liar, if they just are campaigning on that in order to win their seat. But at the end of the day... The problem is that a significant amount of the American public, for whatever reason, has convinced themselves either 
you know, in their hearts or convince themselves that it's a good idea to say that they believe that the 2020 election was stolen, our future elections are under threats of being stolen by, you know, illegitimate voters who are trying to walk away with the election and, you know, Republican candidates are getting fleeced. And is there a sort of surface level similarity with concerns raised by Democrats? I mean, I I suppose they're both talking about elections and they're both saying that, you know, they're worried that the election isn't going to be completely fair. But I think if you focus too much on the surface level, you just end up leaving out what's really the problem here, which is that one side is connected to reality and the other has just completely disconnected itself and entered this world where Biden isn't the legitimate president. And so I think the problem is that, as you say, like there's there's no way to kind of reach compromises and grapple with this because one side is operating under the assumption that the sky is green. And yet at the same time, it's crucially important to address this for exactly that reason. Yeah, I, I, I agree with Quinta, I think, here. I, I, I think, you know, Scott, I, I, as much as I enjoy pointing out hypocrisy on both sides, and, and I do. This is woke Rosenstein. Yeah, I think this is just one of these situations in which trying to be too fair and balanced, to use the term ironically, I, I think it can, can blind one to the fact that you really have asymmetric craziness going on. And again, it's not that there isn't craziness on the Democratic side, and it's not as if there aren't unfounded claims of you know, vote shenanigans on the Democratic side. You know, Stacey Abrams, when she lost to to the Georgia governor's race, I'm still not sure she's actually conceded that she actually lost that race. Uh, and in retrospect, her claims about, I don't know if it was voter fraud or for, or for that election to have been stolen, as it were, maybe aren't looking so good in retrospect, given what we're dealing with now. But I, but I, I don't think you can compare that, although that's a problem and we should deal with it. To what is happening on on the Republican side, you know, be, because again, for the reasons Quinta mentioned, it's just not reality based. I, I mean, w- when you're dealing with people who are worried about Chinese bamboo threads finding their way into voting machines, I, I mean, that that's not that's not a group of people that one should compromise with. And and the fact that you're not seeing a full throated repudiation of that from Republicans, but a kind of playing footsie with, is to me particularly concerning and and makes me really doubt whether. In 2024, if these states, particularly red states, um, have a mechanism to, by some nakedly political process, overturn what their election administrators say that they won't do that. Now, I will say that the one kind of reason I think there is for optimism is that I think overturning an election on the back end is actually much harder than overturning it on the front end. You know, if you have a, if you set up a system in which you know, you've designed your voter ID laws and your mail-in ballot stuff and your felon disenfranchisement decisions in such a way as to harm a particular group or harm a particular party. If you can actually pull that off, which is very hard to do, then it can be hard for after the election people to fight that because like when you literally counted the number of votes, it's pretty obvious that like one side had more votes because the other side either didn't show up or wasn't able to. Right. And you can obviously argue, well, the reason we lost that was because of voter suppression. But that's a little more of an indirect argument. If instead you literally have, you know, the Democrats won more votes, everyone has called that. And then three weeks later, the Republican legislature just decides and we're not going to do that. That, I think, is something where uh, that's more obvious and more offensive and and can kind of cause much more political blowback. So that's one reason I'm more optimistic that these moves won't cause a huge amount of trouble in 2024, but they can still be bad. Yeah. You know, Al, I think you've actually made my point kind of there in this regard about pointing to the Stacey Abrams case, which I agree is it's a different thing. Like I find it really offensive when people I think should be able to vote aren't able to as easily. And I see it maybe having an effect of the margins here. But those are sorts of claims like we've seen on the progressive side about the legitimacy outcome of the elections. And they're very instrumentalist. And in some ways, again, things I agree with a lot. What they're saying, like, look, if an election doesn't meet a certain base standard of people being able to participate in a certain way, that election raises real questions of legitimacy, particularly when it's close and those measures could have made a difference. But that's a little different from saying, like, we think these people should be able to vote and the institutional outcome is invalid. And I think we see some of the downsides of this rhetoric in the debates around, you know, HR1 and S1, right? Um, these really, really bold, ambitious visions of bills that were really, really, really aggressive from the outset for a really, really closely held Congress. 
and ended up kind of fizzling in part because a lot of people weren't willing to let them get watered down to the point um, where you might have been able to build consensus around them. Maybe there was no consensus to be had in the first place. That's quite possible. But there didn't seem to be, at least so far, much appetite to do it. I'm, I'm still optimistic. Hopefully some people come back to some aspects of that and, and try and pass it around those areas where they can get you know the 60 votes they need or maybe they'll they'll carve some sort of carve out for a filibuster but again we'll have to be a narrower universe where they're actually trying to get from those initial bills the other point of this i think i would make is that you know it's part of actually the narrative around this that we're tying all of this to the big lie people right but a lot of these measures are a things that republicans have been trying to do for years before the big lie element and b are things that the presence of a belief in big liar a lot doesn't necessarily affect anything. The one thing that maybe it affects if you actually think the secretary of state is being handed the power to completely throw out election results and just hand it to whoever they want. That would be a problem no matter who that person is, right? Whether it's a big lie person or not, I think. And actually, secretary of state rarely have that much power. They have much more marginal power uh, and often depends state to state. Some states have a lot more power. Other states, it's really devolved down to local boards of elections. So, you know, all of which are, there is an effort to put people who agree with a certain perspective there. And that's a problem. I agree. It's totally a problem. But I think the the narrative saying like, oh, this is all a product of the big lie. I think there's an element that that's true. I also think it's a really convenient narrative for people trying to delegitimize these efforts and tie it to something that's, I agree, wildly more problematic and departed from reality, which is the efforts to deny what happened in 2020. But that doesn't necessarily bleed into planning for 2022 or 2024 and what the appropriate ex-ante markers are for a legitimate fair election there. Um, those are kind of two separate issues. And, I, and you know, there's strategy involved in the rhetoric and framing of all of these things. And, and I think that's a little bit what we're seeing here. Yeah. And I think this is all really interesting. And I think the distinction that we're making between the pre-election integrity and legitimacy versus the post is an important one. And I think one thing that I had come across that is actually very interesting to me is, you know, I immediately, because I have a background in international governance issues, came up with the idea of, well, what about international nonpartisan election monitors? Does that help legitimacy perception? And I thought to myself, well, I don't know how much Americans would really care about what international election monitors have to say. But it turns out that someone actually did a study of this in 2020 and found that there were something north of 70% of respondents who agreed with having election monitors for the 2020 election, including 65-ish percent of Republicans. So I thought that was just an interesting, you know, that's not going to solve all the problems, but that would be an interesting tool to use. Unsurprisingly, and yet unfortunately, there are some states that explicitly prohibit international election monitors to monitor their state's elections. So I suppose it would not work there. But as a general matter, I think it might be an interesting tool. And it would certainly not be the first time that international election monitors came and observed and reported on what they saw. Well, speaking of foreigners playing a central role in American elections, let's talk about Russia and cyber hacking. This past weekend, Microsoft announced that it had caught Russia's SVR intelligence agency. Yes, the same SVR that is believed to be responsible for hacking the DNC servers in the lead up to the 2016 election and the SolarWinds hacked that was uncovered earlier this year towards the end of last year. That they have were caught attempting to launch yet another large-scale hack into cloud data this time managed by Microsoft, uh, including government data and private data, as I recall. Experts have described this as kind of a brute force operation, basically involves kind of running a bunch of bulk bot stolen passwords against a variety of points of entry, trying to get into these systems, and that they believe is aimed at fairly conventional espionage, meaning kind of gathering data, not disrupting systems necessarily. And Microsoft made the point very carefully, for its own reasons, no doubt, that there was minimally successful, and that to the extent it was successful was only because Microsoft contractors had failed to keep up with their security protocols as required by their contracts with Microsoft, something the company promised to address. But it's nonetheless notable because this is the first time that a major Russian cyber operation like this has been uncovered and acknowledged publicly, at least, since the United States imposed sanctions over solar winds and other Russian cyber activity early this year, and in particular, laid out a pretty strong rhetorical line promising repercussions if Russia continued its involvement in malicious cyber activity. So what does this all mean for the Biden administration's efforts to deter Russia from pursuing this sort of activity, or the international communities for that matter? And is there something different they need to do in this direction to get Russia to curb this sort of behavior. 
Quinta, let me start with you. I'm going to be honest. I've never 100% understood what exactly the U.S. government is supposed to do here. And I say that as someone without a background in cyber issues, without a background in international relations. And maybe there's a crystal clear answer that you know eludes me because I lack the proper training. But Jack Goldsmith has written a lot on lawfare about the sort of the failure of various U.S. strategies that have been used so far. The Obama administration sort of used a a name and shame strategy, identifying particular hacking groups and calling them out. Jack, I know, thinks that that has not been very effective. The fact that, you know, attacks from various entities, including entities linked to the Russian government and the Chinese government continue certainly seems to indicate that it hasn't been particularly effective. So I find that critique pretty compelling. I've never been 100% clear on what the alternative is. Because if the alternative is something like turn out all the lights in Moscow or something like that, I mean, that that's a... I'm using an intentionally provocative example there, but that's a big step. And I've never been sure sort of where the gray area is between the finger wagging and a step that is potentially dangerous and extremely escalatory. I think it's important when we're talking about you know, offensive cyber operations to be really specific about what we're talking about, because just calling it all hacking is not, I think, very helpful. So there's there's what happened in this case, which appears to be, as Scott pointed out, pretty classic espionage. Then there's the related industrial espionage, where uh, and this is something that China in particular has done a lot of, where a foreign government will hack a U.S. company, extract some trade secret or intellectual property, and then spread that around uh, its its own companies. Then there are various types of hacks meant to, you know, cause some bad effects in the target country, right? So the 2016 election meddling is obviously a very famous example of that. In in other cases, especially in places like Estonia, for example, you know, there have it has it has risen to a sort of more kind of concrete level. You one can imagine a cyber attack taking out a power grid or causing all sorts of death and destruction. The fact that these are all quote unquote hacks, I think by itself is not that useful anymore to keep in mind. Because when we're trying to figure out whether or not the Biden administration's approach to deterring Russia has been successful, we can't just say, well, there's still been hacking. I mean, of course, there's still going to be hacking because some of the hacking is less important than some other of the hacking and some of the hacking we want to do as well. Right. It's very hard for the United States to credibly tell other countries not to do espionage when I mean, I have no inside information here, but I assume and I certainly hope that the NSA is doing a bunch of this on its own. Right. And the difference between the United States and a kind of more closed society like Russia or China is that those societies may be better at keeping evidence of U.S. hacking secret, right? To me, the fact that this was a intrusion to gain information rather than, for example, to meddle in an election or to take down a power grid is a good thing. And so for me, the counterfactual and the one that I just don't know how to answer is, but for the Biden administration or the you know, general U.S. administration actions, whether it's sanctions or something else, would we have more of things like the 2016 hacking that was meant to affect the election? Um, because if those are being suppressed and what we're dealing with is more traditional espionage, I mean, of course it's bad, but it's not the sort of bad that I think we should be quite as concerned about. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Yeah, I think that's an important point. And I think that the really interesting question to me is, should we understand, you know, to your question, Quinta, of what is the government supposed to be doing? 
a sort of two-part, what can it be doing defensively and what can it be doing offensively, but also what must it do somewhat secretively and what can it do more publicly? So I agree, Alan, I think I assume also without inside information that there is plenty of response going on through entities like the NSA on behalf of the U.S. government. If sanctions are ineffective in and of themselves, you know, for example, I saw a statistic that the the U.S. only holds about 7% of Russian debt anyway. So that doesn't seem to give us a ton of leverage. And I know sanctions have worked in other contexts, et cetera, et cetera. But if that's not going to be the main deterrent, that doesn't mean that there aren't others in place. But the other part of the strategy that I think the Biden administration has indicated a real priority on is getting the public and private sector better prepared for these types of attacks, whatever it is that they are seeking. So there's been a lot of initiative, um, including an executive order that the president signed in May about getting better defenses in place, getting public sector, private sector to work together, getting reporting requirements put in place, and coming up with joint initiatives and strategies to counter cyber attacks. And there's been some amount of movement on this. I know that CISA set up a board to work across private and public sector on defense and to come up with plans for coordinated responses, et cetera, et cetera. This has been a diagnosed problem in the past of just inability to coordinate quickly as is necessary after cyber attacks. And then Congress is also addressing the issue with a bunch of pending legislation, including what I know has gotten a fair amount of focus on requiring companies to report within a certain amount of time attacks to the government so that they are aware and can respond accordingly. Yeah, I I think that really gets at kind of the nub of this and why some of the criticism we're beginning to see turned often conveniently by political enemies to the Biden administration is a little bit misplaced. You know, you don't think about deterrent against cyber activity writ large, as Alan's kind of illustrated. You got to segregate out from uh, something like this, which is a kind of spying activity, which is problematic, but is espionage is kind of a normatively accepted thing in the international community. It's kind of weird because it encompasses a lot of personal private data. We tend to value very highly. It may not be the case if you're hacking into a Russian system, but nonetheless, it's just kind of some element of the game here. You got to be a little careful when you draw lines around these things because the United States does want to exclude behavior that it thinks is necessary and its allies think are necessary for its own national security in this sort of domain. The real test of deterrence are things that go well beyond that, like election interference, like uh, ransomware, I think, is one that we're really seeing a strong push against and Russian kind of tacit, sometimes not so tacit support for that, like targeting infrastructure. Those things will be really alarming. And I think you are able to say maybe the deterrence is being effective there because we've seen Russia begin to push back on that activity. And we've seen a lot of the United States actually slap back against those, which may yet yield dividends. I don't think we really know. I think we have to wait and see to some extent on some of these, but we shouldn't just say this one type of activity is necessarily indicative of all the other types of nefarious cyber activity that we are trying and aiming to term more effectively. The other thing to bear in mind in, in all of this is this, and this is the point that I, I, I somewhat disagree with Jack's general take on this. I agree with him. I don't think the warnings do much necessarily to deter Russia in this regard on its face, but I'm not sure the answer to that, uh, which Jack implies, I don't know if you necessarily would go this far, is that the United States needs to take reciprocal behavior. The cyber domain is one where the United States is at a disadvantage. We are vulnerable on a lot of different fronts. We need to do a lot more shoring up of our domestic front. And we'll do through a lot of the measures Natalie just described before we can reliably act against an actor and not have good reason to think they're going to be able to hurt us a lot more in response through parallel sorts of behavior. I think we're seeing progress on that front, although it's probably very much a multi-year, if not kind of generational undertaking to really establish a a strong and durable and persistent sort of defensive perimeter. But I think you're going to see there the area that the United States does have advantage in is global finance and economics, which is why you've seen the Biden administration turned economic sanctions. And I'm sure we're going to see that again in response to this. And that may be a better way to impose these sorts of costs on other international actors. I want to jump in on something that Scott said, which is about the need for us to shore up our defenses, which is obviously true. And and I want to just take a moment to note an interesting feature of the New York Times article that describes this and that will obviously link to the show notes. The the article quotes a, a quote, senior administration official uh, who called the latest attacks unsophisticated run-of-the-mill operations that could have been prevented if the cloud service providers had implemented baseline cybersecurity practices. 
We can do a lot of things, the official said, but the responsibility to implement simple cybersecurity practices to lock their, and by extension our, digital doors rests with the private sector. And I was, I just want to take a moment because I found that a really striking quotation. On the one hand, it's obviously true, which is to say that in some sense, the folks that are best placed to improve cybersecurity are the giant technology companies that run the cloud. And so I certainly would expect in the wake of intrusion like this for a senior person from the US government to call a senior person from Microsoft and yell at them, right? And say exactly this. But to say that publicly, I find very, very strange. Because at the end of the day, the government is ultimately the one that is responsible in the ultimate sense for national security and for doing counterintelligence. And it strikes me that if the government wants to exert influence over private companies, and especially those private companies that it contracts with to support U.S. government operations, that's the sort of thing that is not helped by then senior U.S. government officials going out and hanging Microsoft to dry, even if Microsoft deserves it. So I I don't fully understand the strategy, as it were, of saying this isn't our fault. Like, okay, but you're the government. It's kind of by definition your fault. So you should go and fix it rather than say publicly that somehow it's not your fault. I found that a very odd, a very odd choice. Yeah, I agree with that. Although I think there's a a clarification to be made, which is that this problem really took place within the resellers rather than the big companies that you're talking about, Alan. So to the extent that quotation is saying, listen, private sector, if you can't get basic security measures in place, there's only so much we can do. They're not necessarily talking to Microsoft there. It sounds to me, in fact, more like they're talking to the victims of this particular attack, which were apparently companies that had pretty poor protections in place. And Microsoft actually published a blog giving guidance to its contractors and to others about how to protect their systems, which was, you know, maybe an example of good behavior by one of these corporations that you're talking about. Is it sufficient? Certainly not. But maybe it is a good example of sort of moving in the right direction and needing for there to be some responsibility taken on the private sector side as well. Though I agree with you entirely that private sector and certainly small intermediary companies can't be responsible for national security. So I have a bit of a meta point to kind of wrap up our discussion on, because this is something that I've been thinking about through our our whole conversation. Every time that there is an intrusion of some kind, you know, the press writes a big story about it, and then I get confused personally. And then, you know, people pop up and make Alvin's point, which is there's an important distinction to be made here between different types of intrusions between just surveillance and and between sort of really potentially damaging attacks. And yet it doesn't seem to me like the press reporting has gotten clearer about that distinction. Should it have been? Should it be clearer at that point? Like, is, is this area just something that is inherently confusing because it's difficult to conceptualize? And once you put the prefix cyber in front of something, it becomes scary? Or... Is it that people are perhaps not understanding the sort of degrees of of subtlety even as the government and the press are setting them out? I mean, I, I just really don't know. So speaking of unanswerable questions, let's turn to our third topic, supply chains, what they are, and how to fix them. So uh, it is now almost two years, kind of amazing to think about, but almost two years since the beginning of the pandemic, and one of its most notable features has been the sheer number of shortages that it has caused. I'm sure we all remember when you could not buy toilet paper for love or money, though fortunately that has been fixed. Faithful listeners of the pod will will remember my love of a certain bespoke hipster pasta shape, which I could not get for six months, not because the pasta wasn't available, but because there was a shortage of boxes, of cardboard boxes. And then during the pandemic, my dishwasher broke. And let me tell you, having an infant with a broken dishwasher is not acceptable. And I don't even want to talk about how much money I spent on a replacement dishwasher, which were also in short supply. So everything's in short supply, not to make this about my sob story. 
And the Times recently uh, published a kind of an overview of why two years later we're still having shortages, you know, why it's hard to get cars and anything with microchips. And, and the, the kind of headline answer seems to be because of the way that we've been developing international trade for the last 20 years. So, Scott, what is it about modern international trade that makes us so vulnerable to shortages? And should we do anything about it? Well, I think for the answer to this, the best place to look is one of my favorite topics, and that is beer. But not specifically beer. I'm talking about the beer game uh, that some of you guys may have heard about. I know I actually heard about a story about it, reminding me about it, I think on NPR maybe the last week or so. Uh, and there's a game that somebody actually has turned into an app that simulates a very basic supply chain and has different people inhabit part of it. But it's an old game going back to the 60s and 70s from like economics grab. I remember I did it in undergrad for a class at some point. And basically tries to simulate how each actor in the supply chain acts and how their behaviors and choices influence the next person down the supply chain. And the long and short of it is essentially is that you see what is often described as a bullwhip effect, which is where small or small-ish choices by people further up the supply chain leads to exaggerated response by people further down the chain. And then sometimes you see a recession where you see, well, oh, I overordered too much last time. I'm going to underorder this following time. That trickles down to the person next in the supply chain who then says, well, the next time I'm going to even order even less. And yet with these massive distortions, because people's ability to predict exactly what they're going to need is often too closely informed by their immediate experience in terms of demand and doesn't actually track where it will be at the point later when they actually receive their order and the actual demand that's going to exist then. They can't see into the future uh, and they're basically overweighting present experience versus mean experience, for lack of a better way to put it, the average over an extended period of time. That's hyper, hyper simplified, probably technically wrong, but that's how I understand it at least a little bit. So what does this tell us all about all of this is, is that you know, it is supply chain is one of these things that reacts in very sometimes exaggerated ways, in part because of our own behavior. And a lot of ways we're experiencing it now is because we're in one of these low points in the bullwhip. And some for some reason, we're expecting it to be as if we were, you know, the average functioning economy for the last 20 years, as opposed to just coming out of a year or two long pandemic that massively disrupted almost every part of our global economy and society, right? If I'm being completely honest, like I, I think a lot of this is about consumer expectations that are just kind of wildly off base. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't real world consequences of this. It's bad if people certainly can't get essential gear for health and supplies. But a lot of what we're talking about is more on the consumer side. That's inconvenient, but I'm not sure it's necessarily you know, a, a massive national loss. Where it becomes a problem is when it begins to slow down economic recovery, or more specifically, when a struggling economy, when inflation, other things that come from this begin to undermine the existing political you know, elites, currently the Biden administration, and they begin to feel it in their polling numbers and popular reactions and worry about it undermining them politically and feeling need to respond. That's kind of the moment we're living in right now. In short, I, I think it's kind of a, not an overreaction because there are very real consequences people are living through, but it is a sense right now of a crisis that has been building for a long time and isn't necessarily indefinite. It's just that friction, the economic friction as we shift to whatever the new equilibrium is going to be that people are experiencing and reacting to very strongly in this particular moment and really feeling in a poignant way. I think in part because everyone's ready to move on from the pandemic, including economically, and we can't do that because of these sorts of shortages. To, to borrow a phrase from a previous era of political thinking, it's the pandemic, stupid. Of course, things aren't normal. There's still a pandemic, right? It does. It feels like the early pandemic was such a reminder of how interconnected everything was because people got sick as they traveled around the globe and brought illness with them. And now we're sort of having another reminder of how interconnected everything is and how even if in the United States you're somebody who wants the pandemic to be over or if you are someone who, you know, is is vaccinated, all your friends are vaccinated, ready to go back into the office, the rest of the world isn't there yet. And frankly, neither are we really. So it does feel like I agree with you, Scott, that there's a sort of this desire to put this era behind us. I mean, I saw a tweet the other day from someone who tweeted a t-shirt that said, um, I could really use some mean tweets and $1.40 gas right now. Why do you think the gas was $1.40 in 2020? It was because nobody was driving anywhere. So it it does feel to me like the pandemic 
shaped so many aspects of our reality and is shaping them. And there's a real reluctance to acknowledge that even as Scott, as you point out, I mean, I think there there are a lot of different ways in which shortages are not something to be, you know, made light of. It's kind of, it's funny when it's the pasta that Alan can't get because, you know, Alan's misfortunes are always funny, but there, there are real consequences to, you know, people not being able to get equipment, that kind of thing. And yet it just feels like everyone is, has decided to ignore the elephant in the room here. So, so sure. I mean, if we're talking about toilet paper and my favorite brand of pasta, like who cares? But I mean, at some point, there is a concern that supply chain fragility can cause serious national security effects, either because literally the military cannot get the things it needs, or because the supply chain disruption causes such domestic problems that it can get countries to start acting in sort of problematic ways. So I mean, should we take from COVID and the and the disruptions that that you know as a national security matter, our supply chains are so fragile that drastic action needs to be taken. And if so, is it a matter of what I think a lot of folks find intuitive, which is just reversing the offshoring that's been going on for 30, 40 years and bringing certain critical infrastructures, certain critical supply chains entirely domestically? I mean, Alan, what what I wonder about with both of those alternatives is that they they both seem to me to be different ways of sort of trying to seal the United States off from the world in one sense or another in response to a sort of sudden recognition of the fact that everything is interconnected globally. And I wonder whether that itself has political implications in the way that we've been seeing a sort of a, a rise in nationalism and populism around the globe. I mean, if you ask an international relations theorist of like the last like 40 or 50 years, well, maybe a little more recently than that, last 30 or 40 years, they would say, hell yeah, this has a lot to do with ideas of national security and war and peace and these core national interests, but not necessarily even for the reason that you're noting, Alan, about impacting the military or key supplies, right? Or at least not only because of that. A big part of it is because the complex interdependence that comes with globalization, a lot of political scientists say or argue, and I think somewhat persuasively, is a big factor in why states are a lot more resistant to major disruptions in the global system. You know, a lot of this is tied back to what people saw about you know, the breakdown in the global international system and the advance to World War One. You saw, you know, the end of or World War Two, the breakdown of like trade relationships, increasing isolated states willing to go a lot further because they were trying to incorporate and sever international ties economically, made them more willing to engage in sorts of belligerent behavior. And people say, well, now we have these sort of international interdependence. We all are relying upon each other. So we can't really let those sorts of disruptions we can avoid, like major continent spanning wars, interrupt that because we're all going to feel the consequences of all our political electorates are really going to feel the consequences. I think there's some limits to that logic, but I think it's actually pretty compelling in a lot of ways. On the flip side of that is what you noted, Alan, is like these supply questions for these core supplies, which is part of this, right? The military getting equipment, petroleum being an essential thing for any sort of you know, like functioning society, even at a, a level well below just you know fast consumer activity. All these are really important. And there may be an argument to, there to say, okay, governments need to take steps to shore up some of these. This isn't new, actually, right? Like we have had statutory authorities on the book intended to allow the United States government, at least, to take a variety of measures to set up tar tariffs, to set up trade barriers, to take other steps to preserve localized economy in these key sectors so that we are not as reliant on them in the global economy as we would be for a strict market system. And that's always been a countervailing balancing act here. And I don't think that's likely to go away. But if we focus too much on the costs in this moment of interdependence, I think it just really distracts from what might be, I think likely are a lot of the advantages, both in terms of international security, interdependence, the more investment in each other's well-being in the international system. And then on top of that, by the way, it's just cheaper. You know, it's just economically efficient in kind of a microeconomic way. A lot of consumer goods are a lot cheaper on average. So even if they're more expensive now, if you were to not have this interdependence, you would be paying a lot more for most of those goods through most of your life and will be a few years from now once this ripple in the whip begins to sort out. So I just think it's important we not lose sight of that. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And the interdependence as a theory of sort of diminishing conflict is one side of it. And the other side of it is making it an opportunity for international cooperation, right? So we've already seen the UN Secretary General come out with a report recently and make comments recently about 
you know, what can we learn from the experience of COVID and the some amount of focus, though less, on supply chains and standing up economies. Um, the IMF and the World Bank are focusing on this issue as well. There are efforts to sort of come up with these advisory boards that can coordinate and that can get together in order to respond to crises more effectively. And I think, you know, not to beat up on Alan and his pasta, but the issue is much more dire in other countries, right? I mean, Lebanon, which is already in the midst of this horrific crisis that has pushed like 75% of its population into poverty is having water and medicine shortages. So I think it's it's sort of important to recognize, at least as an international community, the severity of what this means and how, you know, the United States could be Lebanon next time, who knows? So I think the the U.S. should take the opportunity to think about how to engage with the international community and international trade system to shore this up beyond just the approach of moving things domestically and being able to stand ourselves up on our own next time something terrible happens. And similarly, I think there's a perhaps more narrow but important opportunity that comes out of this, which is that there are opportunities to rebuild, as there always are when there are crises. And one point that I thought was interesting when I was looking at some of the major consequences for other countries outside of the United States is there are several that were energy crises that were directly related to that country's source of energy. So this happened in China and in India. Their main source of energy was coal, and the price of coal went way, way up. So people couldn't afford it. So there wasn't energy and the ripple effects of that, right? So is there an interesting opportunity here to implement some of the international efforts to combat climate change with a new emphasis on what benefits that might bring? And similarly, Brazil is in the middle of this terrible drought. Maybe there will be more receptiveness to ideas to rebuild in a more sustainable way. Well, unfortunately, the supply chain of this episode has reached its last link because we are sadly out of time. (laughs) That was good. That was a good segue, Scott. Thank you. I thought that was a pretty good metaphor. Uh, Why not? Chains, et cetera. But it would not be a rational security, of course, if we did not leave you with a few object lessons uh, to take with you over the course of this week and maybe investigate yourself. Quinta, why don't I go ahead and start with you? I have a boring and civic-minded object lesson this week, which is flu shots. Everybody should get them. I am getting mine tomorrow. So, dear listener, that is probably the day when you'll be listening to this podcast, Wednesday. You can get them for free. The you know, Especially as we're heading into the winter, Delta is still raging. It's extra important to make sure that hospitals aren't overloaded with flu patients because the flu can knock you out. And I have heard that there may be some nasty side effects from the flu vaccine this year, but you know what? It's better than getting the flu. So that is my pitch. Everybody go get jabbed. Amen. I, I, not to brag, I got the flu vaccine and I got my booster. So get your flu vaccine and get your booster when you can. Double vaccinated. Well, yeah, I got the Johnson and Johnson. So they were like, get your booster as soon as you can. And I said, okay. Alan, do you want to go ahead and tackle the next object lesson? Um, So um, despite all the mockery of my pasta habit, or maybe because of all the mockery of my pasta habit, I'm going to have a pasta-themed object lesson. So take that, haters. My object lesson is my current favorite kitchen unit tasker, which is my spetzel maker. If you're wondering what a spetzel maker is, it is a device to make spetzel. And if you're wondering what spetzel is, spetzel is a truly delicious I'm going to call it a kind of quick pasta. It's a German. Uh, Scott is is shaking his head. You all can't see it, but Scott's shaking his head. But I'm going to, I'm going to look pasta. Not is in disagreement, flour. just in genuine some shared beguilement about how do you describe spetzel? But yes. Agreed. Yeah. How do you describe spetzel? It's, it's, it's kind of like a pasta. It's flour and egg and milk. And then you kind of, you, you whip it together into this kind of thick pancake batter like consistency. And then you drop it into water and it cooks really quickly. So it's kind of between a, a pasta and a, and a dumpling. You can make it with a colander. There are all these YouTube videos that I make it with a colander, or you can spend $15 and buy a dedicated spetzel maker. And it has, uh, it has had uh, a lot of use in, in our household. So I just want to put in my plug for my spetzel maker and the, if I may say so, delicious spetzel that it creates. Spetzel is delicious. Yes, the special special. I have special. to say, 
<laughs> I'm I'm pretty charmed by the the Amazon about this item section, which starts off want to make Spetzel just like how Oma did. That's oh, very sweet. That's, that is very charming. It's reconnecting with heritage. Definitely not my heritage, but someone's heritage. Sure, <laughs> I'm just in it for the someone food. Someone else's heritage. Someone else's heritage. It's delicious though. Well, my object lesson uh, fell on my head while I was moving some boxes earlier this weekend uh, in that I was sorting through something looking for my son uh, that we had boxed away after he got as a gift after he was born and knocked over a storage box full of my old DVDs uh, that I have long since boxed away because I don't think I've had a working DVD player in many, many years. But one of the ones that fell out and occurred to me how great it was that I haven't looked at it for a while was this weird box set they released on some anniversary of Saturday Night Live of its very first season. And I wanted to go ahead and endorse and encourage people to check out the very first season of Saturday Night Live, which I looked up and evidently now you can stream on Hulu, so you don't need to find this old box set, because it is really not what you expect at all. It is still kind of a comedy show, like Chevy Chase is very funny, Bill Ratner, a bunch of people are on there, they're like pretty funny, although let's not pretend like it's all that funny, it's, it's only kind of funny during those first seasons, but it really was this like genuine variety show early on. So they would have people from like Broadway shows coming in, doing segments and songs from particular shows, they had amazing bands, uh, there's like a Gil Scott Heron performance of Johannesburg. That's phenomenal. Patti Smith doing Gloria that you can find online. I'll try and throw a link into the liner notes for those. Paul Simon hosted the second episode. And even though they were broken up at the time, or maybe it just got back together briefly, got Garfunkel back on to sing just three songs while Paul Simon sang like 12 of them, uh, which is, you know, characteristic of the relationship at the moment. Uh, but it's really interesting to see in person. Uh, and this is phenomenal, like staff shot of pop culture, not only pop culture, like hip New York pop culture in the mid seventies. That's really, really awesome. The highlight by far, though, is the fact that Jim Henson of the Muppets had his own segment on SNL, which was a very adult themed Muppet show uh, involving some sort of weird alien monarchy and things that got about court. And it's like very weird to see Muppet humor trying to take on adult topics and kind of a late night 70s vibe. But it's pretty amazing. So I just wanted to throw out there an endorsement for people to check that out because it is a great historical record that 100 percent worth getting your eyes on. With that, Natalie, I'll hand it over to you to close us out. Well, mine is not nearly as exciting and involved as yours, Scott. But I will say that, as some may recall, last time I was on this podcast, I was received with some challenges as to whether I am, in fact, a real American, having come from the Midwest. So as preparation for this episode, I spent two weeks in Chicago, for which I took two two-day drives from and to Washington, D.C., and I did, in fact, confirm that I am a real American, and also Chicago is a beautiful city, and I listened to last week's episode of Rational Security while I was walking on the beach. So, Are you your own object lesson? Um, I was going to say, I, I suppose maybe um, my object lesson is that everyone should visit Chicago. Am I the tourism board? Acceptable. I have never been to Chicago, actually, but I've heard it's lovely. One day. Just don't confuse deep dish with pizza. It's not pizza. Don't at me. Guys. It's delicious. Guys. Just don't it's like a kind of it lasagna. It's very good. Okay. It's, it's a casserole. There's a lot going on. It's just not pizza. Let me just reiterate that though. when we all get together, I will be supplying said Chicago deep dish pizza to my supporters. And so far, that appears to only be Scott. But Scott is a strong supporter. We'll eat all your pizza. So I'm on board. The fewer, the better from my perspective. Well, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Rational Security 2.0 is, like its forebear, a production of Lawfare. You can still find our show page at lawfareblog.com, where you will find liner notes for this episode, including links to the articles and object lessons we've discussed. You can also purchase Rational Security swag at lawfarestore.com or go to patreon.com slash lawfare to become a material supporter of Lawfare for ad-free podcast feeds and other special benefits, including a committed ad-free feed for this very podcast. Please do follow us on Twitter at R-A-T-L Security. And whenever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave a rating and review or hit that share button and pass it along to your loved ones. Our audio engineer producer this week was Hamza Shitu of Goat Rodeo and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. We are edited, as always, by the wonderful and immortal Jen Pacha Howell. On behalf of my co-host, Quintan Allen, and our special guest, Natalie Orpit, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.